Okay, I'm here today with Ken Thompson, one of Functional Oncology's senior editors, one of our most senior editors. And we're talking about a new paper recently published in Functional Oncology by Simon Pearce. Um, the title of the paper is Implications for Biodiversity Conservation of the Lack of Consensus Regarding the Humpback Model of Species Richness and Biomass Production. So I guess the first, first thing is, what is the humpback model and why is there a lack of consensus? Well, the humpback model is a model which attempts to help us to understand what it is that controls species richness in small patches of herbaceous vegetation. That is the number of plant species that can actually coexist um, in a small patch of vegetation, which is something, frankly, that we don't understand terribly well. And the humpback model tries to help us to understand that. And it's been around for about 40 years now, at least 40 years, in fact, perhaps longer. And what it says is that uh, if you measure biomass and you measure species richness, both of these things start off very low. In other words, when biomass is low, species richness is low. And clearly that must more or less inevitably be true, because when biomass is very low, in fact, when biomass approaches zero, there's no biodiversity. So when nothing grows, nothing grows. Nothing grows, nothing grows. So the relationship between these two variables, whatever its shape, must must at least go through the origin. We can probably all agree on that. It's what happens after that that's slightly more complicated. Uh, what the humpback model says is that as biomass increases to low but moderate levels, um, species richness also increases and reaches a peak at some fairly low level of, of biomass. But that as biomass continues to increase, species richness then declines. And eventually, when you get to vegetation with, with very high biomass, uh, species richness declines to very low levels. So that the, the, that's why it's called the humpback curve, because it's big in the middle and low at each end. It's been around for about 40 years, so why is there still a lack of consensus? Well, there's a lack of consensus for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, lots of people have measured these two variables because they're moderately easy to measure. And what people find is that sometimes they find a humpback relationship and sometimes they don't. Um, and there seem to be a number of reasons for that, even if the relationship is normally found over the complete range of biomasses. One problem certainly is that Local studies, studies that look at one particular kind of vegetation type, um, tend not to cover a very wide range of biomasses. And therefore, of necessity, they're only looking at a small portion of that biomass gradient. And so, depending which bit of the gradient they're looking at, it's not quite clear whether you would expect to see species richness rising with biomass or declining with biomass or not changing. So... Over a small range of biomasses, almost any relationship is compatible with the humpback model. So it's certainly true that people who look at a wide range of biomass values, and particularly people who look across very different types of vegetation and then put them all together, seem to stand a better chance of finding the humpback model than people who look at particular individual vegetation types. So, I mean, the humpback model is it's a big picture thing, and when people look at small examples or smaller sections, it's just harder to harder to determine that. 
Yes, it's it's definitely something that you would expect to see if you look at the largest range of biomass values that you can find or that are available in a particular region. It's certainly something you wouldn't expect to find uh, if you look at only a narrow range of biomass values. Simon Pearce's paper is sort of a, a response to a 2011 science paper by Adler et al. Productivity is a poor indicator of plant species richness. Um, have you read that paper? Could you go over it a little Yes, I, I read that when it was when it was first published. It's um, quite a short paper, of course, but it has a lot of authors, um, almost 50, I think. And that's because it's an output from a network of ecologists around the world um, who are working on herbaceous vegetation, grasslands essentially, but sometimes other slightly different kinds of herbaceous vegetation, usually for other purposes, usually for their own Uh, particular ecological investigations but they've come together to try and answer some big questions by combining data from lots of sites. So the data has a very very large data set to work with? It's a very large data set, very large data set from um, all over the world although most of the data um, come from North America. Okay and in Simon Pierce's paper, um, I understand he uses the data set from, Ad- from Adler et al. and comes to some different conclusions? Well, yes and no. Um, the original Adler paper puts together all the data from all these different sites across the world and plots biomass against species richness and does, in fact find a humpbacked unimodal relationship, which is low at each end and high in the middle. But as they say in the paper, that relationship is uh, is not a very strong one. It doesn't explain much of the variation in uh, in the data. And they also say that if they leave out the anthropogenic vegetation, in their data set, um, and also a single salt marsh site, although it's not very clear why you would leave out a salt marsh site, but anyway, if you leave those bits of data out, then that unimodal relationship uh, then disappears. Where does some piece of a different conclusion based on the data that he observes and that he describes in his commentary? Well, Simon Pierce, I should really tell you at this point, what what the sort of subsequent history of this science paper is okay. because because it, because it um, it provoked a little bit of disagreement from people who believe rather more strongly in the humpback model than do the authors of this paper. So there has been some inconclusive debate in the pages of science, mm. um, but that's as far as it goes. Simon Pierce then came along. Uh, and he's at the University of Milan, although in fact he's, he's, he's British. Um, and he didn't want to let the argument rest there. He felt, he felt that the argument had not really come to a very satisfactory conclusion from his point of view. And so he took the original Adler et al. data uh, and he co- conducted his own analysis with it. Um, and the difference, the difference in what he did um, is that well he did he did a number of things. 
Firstly, he said that he wasn't really convinced that there was any objective justification for leaving out the anthropogenic grasslands from the data set. Firstly, because he wasn't terribly sure what anthropogenic actually meant, in the sense that he's not sure that anthropogenic in the modern world can really be applied as a kind of on-off, either-or mm. variable. Um, you know, because I mean, it's a bit of a broad term for. Yes, I mean, in a sense, the whole world is is rather anthropogenic these days. I mean, it's quite hard to find a bit of the world that's not been without modified human without human influence of some sort. So. I think one of his points was that anthropogenic is not a binary variable, it's a kind of continuum, and therefore actually calling some of these sites anthropogenic and others, you know, as it were, without human influence, any human influence presumably, is, is, is never going to be strictly true. Uh, he also wondered why they'd left out the one salt marsh site, because there, isn't, there was no real justification for that. So he said, first of all, he said, you have to include all the data. Um, and the effect of that is that that lengthens the biomass gradient because as it happens the anthropogenic sites are the highest biomass sites this is why the humpback model that Adler et al find disappears if you leave them out okay. because they are the only high biomass really high biomass sites in the whole data set so the humpback model is there if you leave them in, and it disappears if you take them out. So there's, a, there's an argument to be had there, um, which presently, is, to me anyway, seems to be not concluded. I mean, okay. I, I, I wouldn't like to say who's wrong or right, whether you take those so-called anthropogenic sites out or not. It, it needs, it, it's one of the problems of a, of a science format paper mm. is, of course, that you know, science values brevity. So a science paper is short. It doesn't go in for lengthy explanations of why particular things were done. Fortunately, we have this podcast to go into lengthy explanations. Fortunately, of... we have a podcast where we can take as long as we like, uh, limited only by the patience of the listener, yes. <laughs> OK, um, so you were the editor for the Simon, for the Simon Pierce commentary. Um, when it came in, what? why did you think it was a particularly interesting view of the subject? Well, for, well for, firstly, it's, it, it's, it, it's an... Ex well, I, I can kind of come back to that later, I think, because I think what I need to explain also is that, apart from the question of, of, the, of the completeness or otherwise mm. of, the, of the data set, you know, depending, you get yeah. a different result depending whether you include it all or leave bits out. Um, what what Simon Pierce was was saying was that the relationship between biomass and species richness is not a normal. It's not the normal kind of bivariate X Y relationship that ecologists are used to. It's not a line joining some points. What it is is it's a relationship that sets a limit to the species richness that can be achieved at a particular biomass. So it's not a relationship, it's not, it's not a line. It's a, it's a boundary between, if you, if you picture the humpback model, the humpback curve, it's a boundary between the region below the curve, which is where 
biomass and species richness can coexist in a region above the curve where they cannot. So it's not predictive in the sense of if something's at X point on the axis and why it'll be at this point on the graph. It's predictive in the sense that if it's at X point on the axis, Y point on the graph, it'll be below a certain yes, level. It tells you okay. it tells you the highest Y value you can possibly expect for a particular X value. Yes. Yeah. Now, I have to say at this point that, <laughs> to go back to the science <laughs> paper, Adler et al. were aware of that. Mm. So if you read the paper, they're aware of that. And they say um, that one interpretation of the humpback curve is that, is that it is a, it's a boundary. Now, they said they investigated that boundary um, condition using quantile regression. Now, what can... To, to muddy the waters at this point, it's not clear from the science paper whether they did that using the complete data set or using the edited data set with the anthropogenic points left out. They don't say. But whatever they did, that quantile regression, which is supposed to identify the boundary of this relationship, did not produce uh, a significant relationship. Simon Pierce, on the has used a different, a quite different approach, a quite different method to identify the boundary, and a much, uh, a much simpler to understand method in, in a sense, because all he says is he's divided the biomass into regions, into bins, as, as we call it, and he says, okay, we look at the, I think he says the top twenty biomass, the top twenty species richness values for each biomass and if we plot a line through those points that identifies the boundary now he didn't make this technique up this is a technique that's been used for identifying boundaries in this kind of data um, for a long time now and in fact was invented um, many years ago by John Lawton and Tim Blackburn uh, for a completely different purpose for identifying the boundary of body sizes in animals, but he's taken this particular relate this particular method, and if he does that, he finds a very nice um, humpback relationship in, when he uses all the data. How useful do you think the humpback model is for ecologists and for related fields for conservationists? And well, it, it's interesting because. It's, it's clear from reading Simon Pierce's commentary that he's very interested in this, not just from a kind of abstract, theoretical, ecological viewpoint, but he's very interested in this from a conservation viewpoint. Um, and although it would be simplistic of me, and Simon himself wouldn't do this, I'm sure, mm. to represent this as kind of... A, a, a European versus American problem here. Um, it's certainly true that Europeans are more interested in anthropogenic grasslands as objects of conservation is, than are Americans. There is very little land in Europe that hasn't been with different degrees of intensity yeah. under human influence. Yes, compared to certainly some areas of yeah. North America. Yeah. I mean, the point about Europe, of course, is that um, the, 
Europe's got lots of grasslands, but they are almost all anthropogenic. Mm. Nearly all of them would be woodland if you left them alone. Not only that, many of them are the most, some of the most prized habitats from a conservation mm. viewpoint. So if you think of chalk grassland, for example, uh, in Britain, you know, this is, this is one of the most diverse, one of the most interesting one of the most highly prized habitats. So Simon Pierce is coming at this very much from a conservation point of view, and he says that um, whatever you think of this anthropogenic, non-anthropogenic dichotomy, whether it's a dichotomy or not, from a European perspective, these highly anthropogenic habitats, they may be climatically highly unnatural. I mean, they may only be maintained by grazing or mowing, but nevertheless, they are habitats of, of extreme conservation significance in Europe, and understanding why, why some of them are very diverse and why some are not so diverse, and how to keep them diverse, is a matter of great importance. And he says that the humpback model is essentially a simple model, which explains to owners and managers of these kinds of habitats um, how to manage them really to keep them in a in a diverse condition and that to say that it doesn't really apply because anthropogenic grasslands don't count it's not is, is not is not from his perspective you know terribly helpful that seems like a very thorough explanation of both papers. And is there anything else that you have to say want to say on the on the topic? Well, I think I think the the, the, the thing to say in in conclusion is that uh, I think this is this is a very important debate which has gone on in plant ecology for for decades now. Um, and I think the the Adler et al. database is a, is a very nice database for testing all these ideas because it is a huge database from many, many different sites recorded using a standard methodology, recorded for the purpose, um, unlike many previous data sets which were sort of mixed, you know, contained different methods and so on. And therefore, its interpretation is really very important. And I think what we seem to be coming down to here. Is an argument is, is, is essentially in the end a, well there are two arguments one is about this whole question of anthropogenic versus not anthropogenic and, and that is unresolved, that needs to be sorted out and the other one seems to be a statistical argument about, about when you have essentially you know, a graph that has a cloud of points and how you separate the boundary between where those points can occur and where they can't occur is a question that clearly the, these these two the contestants in this argument don't don't necessarily um, agree about. Um, so we we as you said we we're publishing the the Simon Pierce commentary. We we have of course gone back to Adler et al for their take on on, on the Pierce commentary. So that the debate continues. But as we as we speak at this minute. And we haven't. They've promised a reply. They've promised their own paper, but we haven't received that yet. So I can't, 
you know, in a sense, this is slightly incomplete. I can't, I can't actually tell you yet what they, what they say, what they think of Simon Pearce's commentary. So we may have to come back for you for a follow-up podcast a little bit down the line. We may well have to come back to this and I can explain what Adler et al. have to say about Simon's paper uh, at some point in the future. Yes. Okay, well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you.